KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. We're continuing our Women's History Month focus by looking at women and philanthropy. All these smaller giving circles, it is a really powerful force. She saw a need and she filled it. Do women give differently than men? If so, how? When they put their money into something, they want to go and see how it happens. They're fascinated with what that money can do. We take a look at the impact and what's to come. Then the American Rescue Plan was signed into law this week. The next step is rollout. Now the question is implementation, transparency, accountability. Third District Congressman Dwight Evans lays out what the $1.9 trillion will pay for and what you can expect. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. We continue our recognition of Women's History Month and our focus this week is women in philanthropy. In recent years, women givers have come out of the shadows with the wealthiest giving billions and many more joining giving circles. So how do women give and what difference are these women making? With me to discuss this flashpoint is Kirsten Merrick. Uh, she's a licensed social worker and founder of Philanthropy Women. We also have Mary Broach, co-founder of Impact 100 Philadelphia. And finally, we have Mary Bentley Lamar. She's the North Atlantic Regional Director of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Ladies, welcome to Flashpoint. Hi. Thank you. First up, I want to start with Kirsten. According to recent studies, women and men engage in giving very differently. Can you explain some of the differences and are women collectively more generous? You know, the research actually does does uphold that fact that women give more than men. Um, that's been, I think, the, the latest report from the Women's Philanthropy Institute is that women, in general, across the board, give more than men. So proportionate to what they have. You know, it sort of goes back to the widow's might and, you know, the woman who was giving everything, right? That was the bigger gift than the billionaire who gives the 0.5%. So women, I think, function more under that mentality and that mindset of, if I have enough, it is incumbent on me to figure out where I can put my extra and where those resources belong in the community. And so what we see in women philanthropists is that they are much more hands-on in their approach. They, When they put their money into something, they wanna go and see how it happens. They're fascinated with what that money can do and they want to really be part of it, which has its good sides. It's, it's also got its drawbacks, right? Because uh, there's kind of nothing worse than uh, someone who comes into a community and with their money and wants to tell everyone what to do. Um, but I think women in general in the, in the sector that I focus on particularly, which is women giving to gender equality, there's this understanding about grant making needing to be more participatory. In other words, the person with the resources really has to listen to the person who wants the resources and give them the resources and the power to do what they want with those resources. Yeah, and we've seen that in a quick follow-up to you, Kirsten, because women at one time, they used to give in the names of their husbands, right? 
or they would just kind of give and according to what their husband wanted uh, or family wanted. But in recent years, we've seen a major shift with women becoming more high profile with their giving and giving in, in groups. Uh, could you talk about why do you think that shift happened where women are willing to come out of the shadows, so to speak? Well, I think it has to do with activism within the philanthropy community, particularly led by uh, women like Helen LaKelly Hunt, uh, Jackie Zayner. Um, these were early forming members of one, one organization called Women Moving Millions, and they just made the mindset change in their minds that they were going to sort of break free of the handcuffs, they call them the golden handcuffs, of being a high net worth woman uh, who's not really empowering herself with her money according to her own uh, aligned beliefs and values. And so they really fought for that. And, you know, as a result, Jackie Zayner was, uh, she was the first woman to make partner at Goldman Sachs. We saw today that Goldman Sachs announced $10 billion in investment in black women over the next 10 years. Fantastic. Yeah. So Wonderful. these are the women who, who you know, blazed the trail and made it possible, I think, for a lot of the big breakthroughs that we're seeing now. Yeah, beautiful. And Mary Broach, I want to bring you in the conversation because um, giving circles, so to speak, are something that women tend to be part of more than uh, men. Impact 100 Philadelphia and other impacts and other places have found a very unique way to raise large dollars to make big impact. Talk about what you guys do, how it works, and the type of impact that you're making? We are, it's a very simple model. Women join by making an individual donation of either $1,150 for women who are 36 and older or 575, which is half that amount for women 35 and under. You have to be 21 to join, um, but 21 to 35, you join for um, $575. It's a one-year commitment. Most of our members do renew and continue to be members for a long time, but it's no obligation. And by making that donation, you're joining in our collective grant making. We pool all those funds together. We hold a minimal amount for operating um, funds. But for example, if I give $1,150, $1,000 goes straight into our grants pool. And we pool those funds. And for example, this year we have 431 women who are part of Impact 100, and we're giving out $420,000. Um, to the nonprofit community. And the basic notion is to pool the funds into large grants. So we give $100,000 grants, as many as we can in the pool. Um, so example, this year we'll give three $100,000 grants, two grants of 50,000. And then we're starting a new program for small awards of five or 10,000. No application involved. We're doing research on our own just to go out and find those small organizations in communities you know, being led by people of color who are representing their communities and really trying to put a spotlight on those smaller organizations. Unfortunately, it's not very much money, the five or 10 this year, but we're hoping that will grow over time. Um, but the basic notion for Impact 100 is, it's just such a powerful concept, I have to say. We're 13 years in, and I find myself in awe of it still, having been, you know, right in the thick of it every year. It's so far reaching. In, in what the grants can do and the spotlight they can put on an organization, the ripple effect that leads in almost every case to additional grants, to publicity, to more partnerships, collaborations. Um, but for us as members, it's kind of this interesting combination of being generous, but being self-serving. Cause I think we get so much out of it ourselves by joining. It's so educational. We learn about the issues in the region. We learn about, um, 
nonprofits with creative solutions, the specific nonprofits and the good work they do. I feel like every year I worked in the nonprofit community for years. Every year I come across organizations I'd never heard of before. It's such a rich landscape. And then we learn about philanthropy and group decision-making, the challenges of, you know, being 15 women around the table, sometimes 40 women around the table, trying to decide between these very compelling proposals and thinking like, what really are our values in giving? What are we looking to do? And so we come back to our mission statement, um, you know, it really is grounded in trying to be very authentic, but um, reasoned in, in our, our decision-making. Um, and I just wanted to share a couple of things about it that I find very interesting. We ask our members why they join and 90% say they like being part of the collective grants. As an individual, my $1,000, it means a lot to me, but it wouldn't mean very much to any group that got it. But $100,000 is really, you know, uh, altering the landscape. And then I think it's so interesting that right behind that, 85% of our members say they like that there's no pressure to participate. People, our, our members really do like to know where their funds are going, but only about half choose to sit on committees and review proposals. And the women who do that love it, find it you know, amazing and to, to learn so much. But so many women just want to make an informed decision about their uh, donation, and they trust the collective wisdom of our membership to, to choose excellent outcomes. And we each have a vote in where the funds go in the end. But I think it's this very interesting dynamic. So Mary Bentley Lamar here. And I actually have a shout out the AKAs because you all inspired me to do a whole discussion on this because this organization has been giving out all sorts of checks to help with uh, the disparity issues with the pandemic and other things. And I had not seen, you know, sororities doing that on such a regular um, scale, but in doing research, sororities, especially in the African-American community have been pivotal to giving and philanthropy um, within black communities. Could you talk about that? And then some of the work that you all have been doing uh, in recent months. With Alpha Kappa Alpha, one of our initiatives is a one million, one million in one day HBCU drive where the members raised over one million in one day for historically black colleges and universities. And this is the third year in a row that we have exceeded that $1 million goal. And that was the vision of our international president, Dr. Glenda Baskin Glover, who also happens to be a president of a historically black college and university. And we are making those funds available to all of the HBCUs. So that's a sorority wide initiative. Now on the regional level, and I am the regional director from Washington, D.C. to Maine. I'm the presiding officer over about 14,500 members. And those members, every year we get together, we go into different communities for our conferences, and we want to leave something of value in that community after we complete our conference. So in this case, we had to do this virtually, being that we couldn't physically be in Philadelphia. But there's some great work going on in Philadelphia, and we wanted to, uh, to make that mark in Philadelphia by awarding the No More Secrets, Mind, Body, Spirit organization, and also the Chosen 300 Ministries. They help the homeless with meals and other services. And in addition to that, of course, the Black Doctors Consortium for COVID-19. And in all three of these cases, it's the members in the host chapters, which is around the Philadelphia, Delaware, Maryland area that hosted the, the conference. They identify the needs that are there locally. 
and then the members come and then they contribute to it. So we gave the $7,000 checks for No More Secrets and um, Chosen Ministries, but the members also had an opportunity during the virtual conference to make individual donations online, to donate goods to the No More Secrets because they are about ending period poverty. Feminine hygiene products were donated through our website uh, directly to them. So these kinds of things added on. Right now, I believe for No More Secrets, it's like about another $3,000 in merchandise. Same thing for, um, for Chosen Ministries. But these are examples of how you can just put this into action no matter where you are. We don't have to be in person for the members to actually be there to make an impact. When you do these things, it it inspires. So the publicity that this brought has increased the giving. It's inspired action, not just in terms of uh, donating funds, but also in terms of donating services. So it's like a ripple effect and we're all connected in different ways. Women are giving. We are nurturing. Let's talk about this as a collective group. How does this, women being involved in the giving, because we heard Mary Bentley Lamar say, look, we're going to help end period poverty. That's not always something men think about. Just the types of things that women, the types of services that women think about, it changes the game, don't you think? Some of our grantees, I think, um, really do illustrate that. We, for Impact 100, we don't only fund organizations that support women and girls. You know, we, it's across the board. We're looking to award these grants, but so often they are organizations like um, the Women's Center of Montgomery County that works with women who are recovering from abuse and try and victims of abuse. Um, and just this kind of low key organization that works day after day to get out there in the community and support women who need it. And they find creative ways to um, meet the needs of the women they're serving. And I think our members, you're, you're right, Sherry, as women, we just look to that kind of whole picture of supporting the family children. We know women during COVID have been disproportionately affected, especially working mothers who've had to give up their jobs in cases. So it's just, that's always on our radar of looking who are the most underserved in our community and how can we get grants out there to support them. Do you agree, Kirsten? I mean, I think women see things. I think women are the people who are bringing up, bringing in the fold of of community. Um, I think when you look at women's philanthropy, what you see are three factors. And this is also substantiated by the research. They are more focused on equality, they are more focused on inclusion, and they're more focused on systems change. So they wanna make the root cause changes that will bring about more harmony, more peace and more equality in our communities. And that's a substantial difference. And I know you began the call, Sherry, by saying, you know, there's the way men give and the way women give, and we're not saying one or the other is better. But I am saying that the way that women give is better because what we see in COVID is that women's thinking is much more protective to pandemics and health crisis. And again, so it's that factor of what, what's the differential of women's leadership? Well, it's when something, when someone's ill, what's the first thing a woman thinks? The first thing I think is what's going to happen to my children, right? Then I think, oh, right, and myself. Our mindset is always about how we're impacting others and how we we don't want to hurt the people around us. Whereas men's leadership tends to focus on how can we get the most productivity out of society, regardless of what the effect is 
people, how can we monetize things and get the biggest financial return, regardless of its impact on people? These aren't healthy values. That's why we need to be at the table, helping to make those decisions and infusing that other voice. Yeah. We often say in some of our group discussions, jokingly, but you know, if there were men around the table, it would be a very different conversation. And it is women, we come into our meetings with strong opinions, but then we stop and listen to each other. And it's, it is all about Let's come to the best outcome for the community and let's do that together. And I, and I have to say this whole idea of collective giving is something that I think even people with the least, and I mean, Philadelphia is a very generous town. Even if you don't have much, they still find a way to, to give. Absolutely. Know? I think about Dr. Ayla Sanford, Stanford, who started the Black Doctors Consortium. She saw a need and she filled it. She didn't wait to receive funds. She didn't wait to receive grants. She didn't wait to receive someone saying, okay, you go ahead and do this. She took the initiative and look at how it has grown. They still are in need of support and funding and, and all of those things. But had she not taken that initiative, there would be a whole lot more people who were suffering and perhaps not even here to listen to what we're saying, that to me is leadership. And that to me is philanthropy on, on the real, where you go in there and you just take care of it and you don't worry about whether the money's gonna come. It's sort of like build the field and, and they will come Well, they came. So as we wrap up, is there a lesson here as we push for gender equality? And we, we had a setback because of COVID, but we're gonna still be working to close this gender gap. What will this mean you know, as we move closer to equality, what will this mean for the power of women in philanthropy? I, I would say, I think it is almost limitless power. I really do in terms of the power to do good by joining together. And I think um, we see, interestingly among our members, I, we asked the question, how much of the money that you gave to Impact 100 was new money, you know, above and beyond other donations? And two thirds of our members said it was new money. They kept giving the, to the organizations they had been supporting and this was additional funding into the community. So we've given about $4 million in grants come this June. And so about $3 million of that is new money to small organizations in Philadelphia. And we only have 430 women. You know, think about the entire community, all these smaller giving circles, all what we're talking about across the board. I don't have the data for them, but it is a really powerful force and incredibly gratifying for those who step into it. So I think it's just gonna keep rising. Kirsten or Mary Bentley Lamar? Sure, I, I would say a lesson learned is to do what you can, be it in person with your, your personal time, your talent, your skill sets that you lend, or with your funds. Whatever it is that you can do, do that. And don't feel like it's too small. Because together it makes a huge impact. Kirsten, last word. Yeah, I would I would just say um, honor your feelings about your giving and find ways to make them actionable. If you aren't, uh, you know, a super giver, that's not what it's about, and that's what I think women are hopefully bringing to the culture. And I really would like to see some systems change that would enforce that, where every person of every social class got a tax deduction for donating because. It is a transformative experience and it does make us feel connected as humans. So to be able to do it is a privilege, but it's a privilege that everyone should be able to access. 
I want to say thank you so much to Kirsten uh, Marek, to Mary Broach, and to Mary Bentley Lamar for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you. Next up, we get the details on the American Rescue Plan. Combine all those together is where you see something that is transformative. Congressman Dwight Evans unpacks what you can expect. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. It was signed into law this week and is being touted as one of the most significant anti-poverty plans since FDR. So what can you expect? Here with the highlights is 3rd Congressional District Congressman Dwight Evans. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you very much. So this American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion with a T dollars. Talk about it. I mean, there's a lot in here to unpack. Well, first thing, Cherry, this is long overdue. And obviously, addressing the pandemic is extremely essential to it. In the case of Philadelphia, we had a combination of hitting on both sides, the pandemic and poverty, and particularly communities of color and how they have been affected. And the aspect of the pandemic was aspects that really did very devastating to our particular city and region. So what the president did, which I totally agree with, is first the vaccination. And I think that they are moving in the right direction. Secondly, there's the individual checks that is sent to people, which is very important, long overdue to assist the message. Then there's unemployment, $300 additional that the government has played. Then the aspect of housing and rental housing. And then there's the child tax credit. That's a huge deal because think of it like Social Security for kids, is that basically you have a means in terms of assisting children, $300 a month that they could receive. Conceptually, that's not a new concept. That's done in European countries. But the fact of the matter is overdue in our particular case. You think about that, that is very essential in terms of putting a parent in position of taking care of their child. And then there's opening the schools. As much as Dr. Height has tried to do what he's done, the fact that there's been a lack of resources. So reopening the buildings is very important in terms of getting started. So reopening the buildings. Then also when you look at it, there's the aspect of transportation. Concept is very important economically to the city. And then earn income tax right? The aspect of our essential workers being able to take advantage of the earned income tax. Combine all those together is where you see something that is transformative, Cherry, regarding the city of Philadelphia and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Now the question is implementation, transparency, accountability, which is very important. We must be open to people. They must be aware and know exactly how 
their money is being expended. And we don't take that lightly. The $1,400 check, that's $424 billion total, uh, $350 right. billion towards uh, state and local aid. You got uh, unemployment, $246 billion towards that. The, the tax credits and aid to child care for families, $219 billion. Higher ed, education, opening schools, $178 billion. I mean, there's even stuff in here, as you mentioned, vaccination. There's also renter and homeowners, uh, restaurants and bars, veterans, uh, disaster relief, farmers. I mean, who's left out? I didn't get to talk about the importance of restaurants, as you know, to our hospitality industry and to people view restaurants, small business, generating jobs and the importance of what a restaurant means to a community and our veterans for what they have done for us and been involved. And our black farmers, remember, Pennsylvania is a rural state. Yeah. And, yeah. and agriculture is extremely essential. We have saw agricultural school in the third congressional district. So I'm sharing with you, it's this combination. You know, look, this is well thought out. And the fact of the matter that the Republicans chose not to participate when last March, March the 13th, when pandemic is, they voted for the CARES Act, which was very similar to what is in the American Rescue Act. So it's not a question of, 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 of them not seeing this before. I believe that they're being partisan because it's not a Republican as president. The, the difference between Republican type bills, they, are, they were very heavy on aid to businesses. This seems like it's very heavy on aid to individuals. That, and that's important, that distinction to understand. The people who have the least of chances, when I talk about poverty and who's the target towards, I mean, you look at what the numbers like, particularly in Philadelphia, it was between 26 and 23% in poverty. And then when you hit with a pandemic, look at the communities of color, look at the communities that have been tremendously affected in health disparities affected in our safety net hospitals. So those issues you got to be conscious of. Cherry, this understand something. Voting matters. There's consequences in terms of participation. Yeah. Participating in vote. So you can see there's investment in housing, rental, uh, small businesses, the importance of small businesses, particularly small Black-owned businesses, Latino businesses that have. So yes, it is a lot, Cherry. There's no question about it. But there's a lot of work we have to do. Yeah. We've never been in a pandemic before. It's not like we have a blueprint to this. It's not like we have a blueprint. The question will come down to those of us at the federal, state, and local level of working together to address the problems that we have so long. As you look at the problem of violence, how does why and how does violence happen? It happens more than likely because within these communities, there's a lack of a sense of hope and optimism. And, and we need to address the poverty issue to address the violence issue. And people have called this one of the largest anti-poverty uh, bills in American history in many, many Correct. years. Who do you think is left out here? I mean, there are some um, provisions that help uh, middle class, but this is basically for the lowest earners. Well, you know, the, the point of it is nobody's left out if you, if you build a better and stronger America. That's the key. You build a better, stronger America because President Biden talked about attacking um, the pandemic in international perspectives. Mm -hmm. He talked about doing that, right? Because you got to, well, you can't just talk about America. 
you talk about internationally too. All those things are interconnected. And it's important to understand that this is a long time challenge and a long time effort in terms of addressing. Look, this didn't happen overnight, mm-hmm. right? It didn't happen overnight. And it really is the way President Biden and Senator Harris is managing it in conjunction with members in the House. And the ideal situation, the Republicans should have been willing to participate. They voted for one when Donald Trump was president. Clearly, you know, we're Americans first, so we should work together. It's not going to be solved just by Democrats and Republicans alone. Unfortunately, Democrats was the only ones to vote for this initiative. And I'm proud that I voted for it. What do you say in response to some folks who say this is making America a welfare state, that, you know, people getting checks for having kids is just too far? Uh, Address those critics. The poverty numbers speak for themselves. And the fact is, we had to do something. That is because I have a belief that we can make a difference in government. And we need to. We are our brothers and sisters keeper and that we need to figure out a way to help each other out. There are people who have challenging times and we got to figure out how to work together. And the fact of the matter is that's what we're doing here. President Biden and Vice President Harris both demonstrate that collective kind of leadership in terms of building this country back. It's not going to happen overnight with everybody willing to be to join in and help make a difference. The universal child benefit, is that something that's temporary or that is going to be a, a thing that becomes a legacy of this bill? Well, let me put it this way. It's the beginning. It's temporary, but I hope to make it permanent, which will ultimately address the question of poverty. Because you, you have to start with the children, children, children. And you got to put children in positions and families in positions where they can compete and take care of themselves. And that I believe that this goes a long way to starting that process. And it shouldn't be taken lightly. The, I represent the third congressional district. You got 22, 23% poverty. Look at the level of violence. Look at all the aspects that are affecting the communities and decision. We gotta be willing to make these kinds of investments. The small businesses, businesses of color need capital, available money. Those things are really needed. So. This is not something that was just going to happen overnight. This is the first time I've seen in my career such a transformative initiative of investments to transform these communities. And these communities deserve to be transferred. As a lawmaker, what will what will be the hallmarks that say this bill was successful? What are you looking for? Well, obviously, a reduction in, in the poverty aspect, a reduction in violence, uh, business growth and development. Those are measuring sticks. The housing issue, which I've been very big on, we need to do something about, you know, the housing encampments we've had, that's been a challenge for over 40 years. And we're trying to address the housing. So uh, education, there's a lot of fronts, what I call food insecurity. So there's a lot of things, Chair, you're asking the right questions. And I'm, uh, I hope I'm giving the right answers because it's going to take some time. It's, it, it took us some time to pass this bill. It took us some time with the challenges we have making no excuse. We're like trying to reimagine the city of Philadelphia. So the people who voted and participate can see for themselves there is a consequence as a result of them participating. As a result, look where the investment is. Now it's our job to make sure we get the players together and do what's necessary and show people that this does work. And as we wrap up, um, you know, what's the, the rollout plan 
when can people start expecting to receive relief? Well, the rollout plan is we're going to go around and have conversations with the mayor, with the president of city council locally, because they're the first responders, private, nonprofit organizations. We want to make sure equity is involved, that it's all participation. We'll go around talking to people about being a part of the implementation. I couldn't stress that any important. And working together, being open, being transparent, and letting people know. But we still need a lot of people. We still need we still need those organizations that have been working out there, who've been doing every single day, and we need people to be involved. Just to be clear, the federal government will issue the first batch of $1,400 stimulus checks via direct deposit as early as this weekend. Well, with that, I want to say thank you to you, Congressman Dwight Evans, for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you. Next up, she started a nonprofit in her basement to help immigrant kids. Kind of offer them both what I didn't have and what could be for them. The African-focused curriculum making life easier for youth new to America. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. And this week, an area teacher is working to bridge the global divide between Philadelphia students and her native home by creating an African-centered curriculum. Here to talk about the African Community Learning Program is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, founder, Aminata Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Cherry. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so happy to have you on the show because we've known each other for a number of years. But before we go into that, please tell people what ACLP is for those who've never heard of it. Yes. So African Community Learning Program, also known as ACLP by its initials, is a a nonprofit organization I founded in 2017, along with my husband when I was an undergraduate uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So the reason for uh, starting African Community Learning Program was to teach students of African background. And at the time, we focused only on students whose parents are from different African countries. So they were either first-generation Americans or they were immigrants themselves who came not that long ago in the country. And the reason for that was connected with my own experiences coming to the United States to join my husband in 2001. At the time, I was 21. Understanding how overwhelming that transition was for me, I come from a a non-English speaking country, Senegal, and I was a 10th grade high school uh, dropout when I came. But Throughout my educational journey, I studied in French. My ethnic language is Polar, and then one of the most spoken uh, language in in Senegal is Wolof. So those are the languages that I came to the United States with. So I remember watching TV, and it felt like I was just watching people moving their mouths really fast. I had no clue what was going on. I was relearning life in on many levels all at the same time. And I remember how overwhelming it was for me. 
And when I was at Penn, at the time I was already a parent. So I had experience as a thought, how can I bring those different experiences, both as someone who transitioned and was doing relatively fine uh, as a parent. uh, And at that point, I had already volunteered tons of hours in the school district of Philadelphia, also understood and had a sense of the context of what the children were dealing with in terms of transitioning into uh, American culture if they came from different African countries. As a Penn student, I have access to many resources. How can I bring all of those things together, meaning the experiences, the resources, to uh, create something that will be valuable to students so that they have less of a hard time than I did as a young adult coming to the United States. And my husband was a cheerleader from the beginning. We started out in our home basement. I always said that was such a crazy idea. But he renovated the whole entire basement and um, changed it into a little school, basically, right? And then this is where we first welcomed students. Eventually, we moved to the Blackwell Library and then um, eventually to Paul Robeson High School. Talk about the curriculum. What does it teach these young people? When I was doing research of how we're going to put the curriculum together, I found that there were tons of stories about the African continent, about African people, but most of it tend to be on the negative end of it. The stories depicted, for example, uh, people who either starving, uh, living only in the village context, not really in cities. And from my experience, I grew up in a city. I don't have an, a village experience per se. And it just felt very disconnected. So that's how we started um, writing our own stories and researching rigorously stories about different empowering people within the United States of African diaspora, within the African continent, and bringing those together in connection to the experiences and backgrounds of the students to put it into lessons that we then teach the students how to read, how to write, and uh, help them with homework. And then we also incorporated my own stories, uh, stories of volunteers, because we had volunteers from the University of Pennsylvania, from Temple, many of them doing amazing things in their own right, in their own lives, sharing those stories directly with the students. So visualizing, uh, not only teaching the content, but bringing them real people with real experiences who are doing things that they might aspire to in their future, maybe become a doctor, become a lawyer, pursue American diplomacy, work as a politician. We try as best as we we could to make that concrete for the kids. And in many ways it worked. And so how many kids have gone through the program? About 36. The age group was first through eighth grade. That's how we first started. And eventually we, we, we stopped that age group and then we focused on high schoolers, which is what we're focusing on now. It only seems right that now, you know, you have ACLP and you're kind of like, you know, teaching other young people who've come to this country in the way you did. It must be a nice way to help integrate, you know, these young people into society and and you are being someone you didn't have in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. You said it well. I was trying to offer them not just something that I didn't have. I was trying to offer them both what I didn't have and what could be for them in a very concrete way, because I was already on my journey to something that they could envision, not that they could envision my journey, but a journey that's personal to them in whatever way they can see it 
But for kids, it's important for them to see things that are concrete, not just imaginary, but concrete. And I, I brought that concreteness to them, both in terms of curriculum, but also in terms of just people, myself being one of them, and a whole lot of volunteers who also brought in their experiences for the kids. How can the broader community support you? So um, I will say now we have a new website called uh, we are aclp.org. People can can make a donation. Well, I have to say uh, to Aminata C, I'm so proud of you and the African Community Learning Program for all that you do. Check them out. We are aclp.org. Good luck to you. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from author and activist. Helen Keller. Alone, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.